0: One of my favorite card games that I used to play growing up in the islands of Hawaii as a kid was a card game by the name of, uh, we call it Bulaya. And the rules are pretty simple. I'm sure you guys have a, a game here that you played on the mainland, very similar. The, the object of the game is when everyone got dealt the same amount of cards, and the object was to be the first one that got rid of the, your entire hand of cards. And you could do whatever it took to get rid of them in terms of you could lie, you could mislead. If you had uh, two jacks, but you, you could say you put down an ace and a king and say two jacks, and it would kind of go around that way. And if and if somebody didn't believe you and they picked up the cards and if they called your bluff, you ended up taking the whole stack. You guys have played a game similar to this, right? And, and, and I was, I mean, we loved this game and I was really good at it. One of the things I used to love, and if I'm going to tell you my technique, so maybe if we ever play this game, you might catch me, but if for some reason, through the course of the game, I'd get a full set of any hand, I would throw down and say, okay, four aces. And of course, I had all the aces and no one, no one would call me on it. And then the second round I would come by and I'd put down four more cards and say four more aces. And then by that time, they would realize, oh, he lied to us the first time. He now put down the four aces. The third round, I would put down four more cards and say four more aces, right? Because you knew you might lie once, but you wouldn't lie the second time, but certainly the third time. So I could get rid of uh, 12 cards all in that one round. Now, you guys know this game. And we loved it. The whole goal of the game, as you perceive, was was to lie or mislead or be dishonest to get rid of your cards. And I was good at the game, and all my friends, we loved the game because we would love to see who amongst us, who we were believers at the time, could be the most convincing, who, who normally would never be lying, but could throw down a stack of cards and lie straight to your face. And it was good fun, but it was just a game, right? And that kind of behavior, misleading, saying half-truth, trying to fake people out, not being sincere, may be fun in a game, but it's devastating in real life. Misleading someone, making people think one thing but doing another gets you a good laugh when you're playing a game of cards, but it can erode relationships and destroy friendships. Yet these kinds of half-truths and misleading statements and hasty half-hearted commitments seem to be the stock and trade of our current culture. They're disrupting to relationships. They erode confidence in one another's character, yet unfortunately we seem to live in a culture that's awash in these kind of falsehoods. If it's not the professional advertising industry that misleads us this way, it's the rest of our friends on Facebook. I I, I don't know about you, but I am never always that happy or excited. I mean, at least my friends on my feed, they're always so stoked to go climbing or camping or kayaking or just eating dinner. I mean, goodness sakes, it's food. I'm going to eat it. I'm not going to take a picture of it and put it on the Internet. But we live in a culture where everyone's expressing how great life can be, even if it may not be. Remember once, I was at Panda Express or something, and I got one of those Chinese fortune cookies, and every now and again, it actually says something worth remembering. This one said, beware of half-truths, because you always get the wrong half. There's a lot of wisdom in that little cookie. And if just misleading one another weren't bad enough, Scripture tells us, and our own human experience verifies, that fallen humanity is just full of habitual liars. Kids will lie to their parents. Parents will lie to their kids. Men lie to women. Women lie to men. Employers lie to employees. Employees lie to their employers. It seems as if the whole system of our culture is built and established on lies. And you have to wonder, what would happen if just for one 24-hour period, for one day, somehow people were forced or compelled to tell the truth? Would it all just unravel? Imagine what that would be like, you know, passing by the nursery. Hey, Rick, Pastor Rick, you like like my new little boy? Isn't he cute? No, he looks like Winston Churchill. Look at that thing. I'm moving on. I mean, what would happen, what chaos would ensue if we all just told the truth? I'm not thinking of any particular child, by the way. I'm just using that as an illustration. (laughs) The real problem, though, with our inability with absolute truthfulness is that this is just another reminder to us of how we are again not like God. When God speaks, He can be believed because His words are absolutely true. When God offers a promise, we can base our life on it because God never utters falsehood. As a matter of fact, in James chapter 1, verse 17, James says, in Him, there's not even a shadow. There's not even a variation of change not even a shadow, not even a slight variation due to change. In other words, God is constant. God is consistent, and His Word is His bond because it is a reflection of His consistent, constant, wholly unified, trustworthy character. So with this in his mind, as we come near towards the end of this last chapter of this book of James, James wants to address our problem with faithless swearing by reminding us of God's standards of faithful swearing. Well, let's look at our passage this morning, James chapter 5 in verse 12, just one verse, but that doesn't mean we get out earlier. James writes, I'm just being upfront and honest. I'm just going to be truthful with you. But above all, my brothers… Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation." What is our problem with faithless swearing? Now, you've probably figured it out by now that the sermon title, Stop Swearing, is not in reference to the use of foul language or illicit speech or offensive talk. Besides, James has already addressed that in our study of the book of James. You remember James chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Nor is James addressing here gossip, destructive speech, or filthy jokes that Paul heartily condemns in Ephesians 4.29. Instead, James is getting at the human habits so common both then and now of giving our word but not fulfilling it, of taking an oath only to retract it, of making a promise only to break it, to say one thing but to do another. As a matter of fact, so important is our words, our our words, our speech. Do you notice that in every chapter of the book of James, James addresses this issue? So look with me, at, or you don't have to go there, but James chapter 1, verse 26, James writes, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Chapter 2, verse 12, James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Chapter 3, verse 10, From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not be this way. Chapter 4, verse 11, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law. Notice that all of these verses are showing the need for consistency, to be real, to be authentic, to be genuine. And through our study, we've learned from James the reason our words are so important is because the words we use are a reflection of the condition of our heart. So by the time we get to chapter 5, verse 12 this morning, this is kind of the collective truth of what James has been trying to remind his readers, that our hearts also show, our words also show, whether the truthfulness or reliability of them is that we are to reflect the character of God. So, words are so important, according to James, because they both reveal the heart and reflect whether or not we are reflecting the character of God in whose image we were made. One of the major themes in our book of James, one of the major themes has been integrity, has been being whole, being consistent, Being in reality what you appear to be, and that has been a major focus of James, and that is no more, that is not seen anywhere else more easily than in being people of our Word. In New Testament times, just like today, oath-making was very common. Promises were very common and therefore often abused. For example, in some rabbinic writings, rabbis began to teach that an oath was not binding if that oath omitted the name of God or did not imply it. Therefore, if you swore by your own name or by the name of someone else, it was not something uh, that was binding to you, even if you swore by some other object or place. As long as you avoided using or invoking the name of Yahweh, you were okay. You were not technically bound to fulfill it. So, for example, if you swore by Jerusalem, you were not bound by it. But if you swore toward Jerusalem, you were bound by it because somehow implied the divine name. Now, this might seem like the crazy antics of a hyper-religious culture, but we're not much different, are we? Remember years ago, watching the impeachment trials of President Clinton and being astounded at the semantic gymnastics that were going on that filled the news cycle for a week on the meaning of what the meaning of the word is, is. Do you remember that? For those of you old enough, remember that. When the president was talking about what is actually means when he said he and Monica Lewinsky were not having relationships, that he was not involved in an affair, and for an entire week, all the news channels were talking about the meaning of is. So these semantic gymnastics are not just in ancient antiquity, they're relevant today. Even on our own playgrounds, you often hear kids finding the art of being able to say one thing but do another all by that simple phrase, but I had my fingers crossed. Remember that. Listen to what Jesus has to say about that kind of giving of our words. Matthew 23, verse 16, Jesus says, Woe to you blind guides! You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, and he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. What's the point? The point is this. When you speak, it doesn't matter by which name you swear or don't swear. It doesn't matter if you invoke the name of God or don't, or swear by the temple or the gold in the temple or all these kinds of things. When you say you give your word or you simply say yes, you don't need to make a super promise or say you're totally committed, which is actually kind of odd because you're either committed or you're not. What is, I don't know, It's like you're pregnant or you're not. You're not kind of pregnant. When you're committed, you're committed. There's no such thing as I'm totally committed. You're committed or you're not. The point is, when you give your word, you're bound by your word, because that's how God functions. In fact, Jesus tightens the screws even more in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, where he quotes almost the identical passage from James. Listen to what Jesus says. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond that is from the evil one. So what is our problem with faithless swearing? The problem is we don't realize that being God's image bearers, we are to use our words in the way that God uses His words. That when God speaks, those words are binding words. That we cannot just simply say things and believe that they actually have no meaning unless we want to vest them with meaning. They have meaning by virtue of the fact that they have come from our mouths. And we are to image God who means what He says. We are a reflection of His character. So we feel that oftentimes we can say things but renege on the things we said simply because maybe something better came up. Or we just changed our mind. Or maybe we just didn't feel like it. Not realizing that when we do that, we are betraying the very image of the Creator who created us. We need to ask the question, uh, In, I was talking to my wife about this, I would think that this is probably the area that we as Christians probably sin most, isn't it? A lack of realizing the weight of our words and what they mean. Ask, is that you? Can people rely on your simple yes or no Are you someone that you agree to do something but require constant follow-through, or maybe you're fickle or unreliable, or at best, you're simply just inconsistent in short? Are you a flake? We all know the experience, the, the frustration of dealing with somebody who's unreliable, who says things and doesn't follow through, and just doesn't seem to be ever backing up their words. We all know that. If you have no idea what that feels like. You're that person we're all frustrated with, right? We all know what that's like, yet we all partake in it in various degrees. Never forget when I uh, took a pastor back in La Mirada when we first moved back from the Midwest. We were doing this event, and I was in charge of putting the event on, and so I was doing what, what we'd often do, following up, making sure people are going to do as they said they do. And I was talking to a woman, let's say her name was Stacy, second phone call to follow through as she had a big role in this whole event, and she said to me, Rick, You can just trust that when I say something, it's going to get done. And she was right. And she was a woman of her word. But to have someone say, address the issue, she knew what I was doing. She knew I was just following up. And she said, you can just trust that when I say something, it's going to get done. And she was a woman of her word and we got to do so amazing th- so many amazing things in our ministry together simply because she understood the value of her yes and the value of her no in psalm 15 first 4 verses the psalmist asks lord who will dwell with you the answer he says is he who walks blamelessly and does what is right he who speaks truth in his heart and here it is he who swears to his own hurt and does not change? Can people count on you to stick to your word even if it costs you? The scripture says that man, that woman will dwell with God. Friends, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you are only worth your word and nothing more. That's so important. I'm going to say that again. At the end of the day, you are only worth your word and nothing more. Fathers, mothers, how important it is that when you say something to your children, that you will follow through with that. Husbands, wives, how important when we say we're going to do something, we follow through with that. It's not just being a good parent or a good husband or wife. It's being a reflection of the character of God Himself. We are only worth our word and nothing more. The proverb says a good name is to be valued. Above riches, what's he getting at? The name that someone realizes you are a man or woman of your word is worth more than riches because we are reflecting in true the character of God Himself. So, what is the solution to our problem with faithless swearing? It is seeing God's example of faithful or God's standard of swearing. And so we want to see just how seriously God takes this issue. This isn't just Pastor Rick on a pet peeve. This is what Scripture teaches, I want to show you that. First illustration I want to show you is from the book of 2 Samuel. At this time, King David has finally come to his throne. You remember our study from 1 Samuel? He's now the established king. But all of a sudden, there becomes famine in the land. And for three years, the nation's struggling with famine. So David seeks the Lord. And this is what 2 Samuel 21 tells us. So this is roughly, just to track the years here, because this is amazing, this is roughly 1010 B.C. David's the king. There's a famine. He says, what's going on? So he seeks the Lord. Why is there famine in my land, Lord? And this is what the Lord says to him in 2 Samuel 21. You don't need to go there. We'll have it on the screens behind you. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. You're going, well, okay, what does that have to do with a famine coming to us, okay? Here's, I want to set this up for you. Very clearly, there's a famine in the land. David seeks the Lord. Why is there famine? The Lord says, well, there's blood guilt on the house of Saul because he killed the Gibeonites. What? To understand this, you need to go back nearly 400 years to the book of Joshua chapter 9, when the Gibeonites came to the Israelites as they were taking over the promised land, and they deceived the Israelites, admittedly, but the Israelites, who didn't seek the Lord in this transaction, which is very interesting, made a promise to the Gibeonites. They said, "Hey, God's given us this land, and we're coming through to take the land, but we'll leave you alone we will not harm you. We make a pact with you. We're making a promise to protect you. And then they realized they were deceived, but the promise was given. Years later, while David was struggling to be king and Saul was chasing him, theologians and scholars believe, some believe that the slaughter of Nob that we studied in 1 Samuel 22, when when Saul slaughtered all the priests and the people of that area, was the blood guilt of Saul. Now, we're not sure because they were priests, and these were Gibeonites, but they were in the same location. The point being, 398 years later, there's a famine in the land, and the Lord says, excuse me, David says, Lord, why is there a famine here? He says, I'll tell you why there's a famine here, because Saul killed the Gibeonites. What does that have to do with this, Lord? Do you remember Joshua 9 when the leader of Israel promised to spare the Yeah. And then centuries later, another leader of Israel killed the Gibeonites? Yeah. And then 30 years later, you're the leader of Israel and I'm holding you accountable because you gave your word and it was broken. Friends, God holds us accountable for the words that come from our mouths. And now in our American mentality, we say, that's not fair. That had nothing to do with David. That was Saul and that was Joshua. That's not fair. David's his own man. Let's not impose Western ideals on the Word of God. This was a leader of Israel. Being held accountable for another leader of Israel, being held accountable for another leader of Israel who made a promise in the name of the Lord, and it was violated. And God says, when you give your word, you stick to it at your own hurt, and it was not kept to. And so now there's a famine in the land. Wow. Do you see the importance, the value that God puts on our words? Let's go back to our text. This phrase, let your yes be yes and your no be no, as I said, is identical to Matthew 5.37. The only thing that changes is in Matthew, Jesus says anything beyond this is the evil one. But James says, so that you may not fall under the condemnation. Now, the condemnation James is referring to is that when your words are not reliable, when your name cannot be associated with truth, you fail to bear the image that you were meant to bear. And you are condemned for failing as an image-bearer. If you're not bearing God's image, my friends, you're going to bear someone else's image, right? This is biblical anthropology 101. We look at the book of Genesis. We were all created to be image-bearers. Like, just look at every culture, subculture here in the U.S. in South Orange County. We reflect the image of something. We cannot not do that. Ultimately, we will either bear the image of God or something else. Let me read take to you to John chapter eight, Jesus' words when he was having conversation with the Pharisees., oh, they're stinging, but he says this in John 8:44. "You are of your Father, the devil, and your will is to do your Father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him when he lies. He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, you might be sitting there going, wait a minute, you just, just, you're quoting this passage, so are you saying that if I don't keep my word, or if I don't do as I say I will do, like say I'm going to help someone move and I don't show up, you're telling me my father's Satan? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I need to be clear, that's not what I'm saying. That's what Jesus is saying, Okay. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, hold on here. Listen to me. Listen to me. Truth, goodness, integrity, consistency, virtue, reliability, all these virtues cluster together, some more tighter than others, but they're all connected nonetheless, just as falsehood, laziness, unreliability, inconsistency all cluster together, maybe not tightly as others, but they're all connected nonetheless. Every one of us, will either increasingly bear the image of the Father of all truth or the Father of all lies. That's the reality, friends. That's one of the things I love about Scripture. I forget who else having this conversation with, but the Scriptures are so beautiful, beautifully simple as it understands life. There is the, the, the domain of darkness, the kingdom of light. There's the path of the fool, the path of the wise. There's righteousness and wickedness. Which are we on? Now, there are a thousand nuances when you're in one or the other, but these macro paths have to be chosen. And we are either bearing the image of the God and Father of all truth, or we are bearing the image and likeness of the Father of all lies. Speaking truth is at the fountainhead of the Christian faith. Speaking truth is at the fountainhead of the Christian faith. Ask yourself this question, how would you feel, how would you feel if God kept His words, His commandments, and His promises as faithfully as you keep yours? How would that work out for you? Can you imagine those kinds of conversations? Yeah, I know you, the, that prayer request you made last year and you keep making, I, I, I was going to get to it, but something came up. North Korea, you know, I'm kind of distracted right now. Can you imagine that? Imagine God saying something like that to you. Imagine Him saying, yes, I know I promised to forgive sins. I, I know that's in my Word, but, you know, I just I want to be authentic. I just don't feel like forgiving right now. And since I want to be true to myself, I don't want to be fake, I just don't think I'm going to do the forgiveness of things anymore. And so, I mean, Until later, maybe I'll change my mind. Is that how God functions? I know I said I'll never leave you or forsake you, but I just forgot. Sorry. Oh, yes, I'm omniscient. I can't forget. That's not a good excuse. What I mean to say was, I forgot to remember. See, we can spin it however we want. It all sounds horrible if that's how God is going to interact with us. Aren't we glad? Scripture says, heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. As a matter of fact, He says that three times identically in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as if He really wants us to understand something, and what is that? We can take confidence that His Word is true, and we can bank our lives on it. Because Jesus Himself is the fulfillment of Psalm 15, who swears to His own hurt and does not change. Remember our series in the Gospel. When the triune God plotted our salvation, the Son said, I will go to earth, I will redeem humanity, I will live perfectly under the law, and I will die on their behalf. He swore to his own hurt and would not change. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 15.4. Numbers 23.19, the Lord says, God is not man that he should lie, or the Son of Man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Now, while we will always struggle to some degree with this reality, God's words are written literally, in some cases, on stone, aren't they? But more importantly, according to Paul, they're also, they can be written in our own hearts. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 3:3. 3, 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's so important. Listen, I don't want you to leave today if you are a Christian thinking that your hope is simply to try harder, be better, act differently. That's not hope. That's moralism. That's a burden put on your back. It is, this is not a message of just be different, try harder. It is to recognize the work of the Spirit of the living God changing you and making you more like Christ as Paul indicated. That's what's going on. This is what it means to be a Christian, to submit ourselves to God and as He changes us more and more like Christ. This has always been the promise of the gospel from the Old Testament to the New. Jeremiah the prophet was one of the prophets that made it so clear and beautifully. In Jeremiah 31, 33, he says this, "'This is the covenant that I will make "'with the house of Israel after those days,' "'declares the Lord.'" Listen to this, "'I will put my law within them, "'and I will write it on their hearts, "'and I will be their God, "'and they will be my people.'" Friends, the beauty of the gospel message doesn't say shape up the way you talk, be more moral, be more truthful, have more integrity. Now, that's the result. No doubt. That is the result. But that's not the means of change. Let's not confuse the results of our change with the means of change. Jeremiah hints at it right here in the passage we looked at when he says, I will be their God. They will be my people. Friends, change happens through a relationship. Jeremiah hints at that. This is the way this is gonna work. I'm gonna be their God, they're gonna be my people. Change is gonna happen through relationship. We are transformed as we come into the proper relationship with God through worship because of what Jesus Christ has done. So yes, if you're a flake, stop with the flakiness. If there are changes to be made, make the changes, but do not confuse the results of change with the means of change. Very important. The means of change is the relationship we have with God that Jesus brings about in our lives. Friends, let me just conclude by saying this. How radically, how radically countercultural we would be if we just did this one simple thing that James is getting to. That we would be people of our word because we are people that are being transformed by His word written in our hearts. That's what James wants us to be. At the end of the day, that's what James's whole book is about, to be one like your Heavenly Father, consistent, whole, integrity all the way through, and that's possible through relationship with Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for James, who has been a delight to study, if not sometimes hard to track in the way he jumps from topic to topic, but such is life. There are so many things that come at us that we would wish for an eloquently, uh, very easily understood letter, but sometimes life just happens so fast, you have to deal with it as it comes. And Father, as he begins to round the corner and concluding, he reminds us that we need to be like you, one, consistent, without shadow or variation of change. Forgive us for when we're not, Lord, thank you that you remind us of the practical ways that works out, not just in living lives of holiness, but just when we say we're going to help someone move, we show up. When we give our word, we abide by it, and we recognize that even in that small effort, in that small way, we are reflecting you. Help us to do that more and more by the power that you give us through your Son. We thank you in his name. Amen.